Welcome back to the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast review series. On today's episode, we cover the topic of myocardial infarction, found under the cardiovascular section at medbullets.com. Let's start off with a snapshot. A 60-year-old man presents to the emergency department due to substernal chest pain. He describes the pain as crushing and it radiates down the left arm. Medical history is significant for hypertension and hypercholesterolemia. On physical examination, the patient is diaphoretic. An ECG demonstrates ST segment elevations and cardiac troponins are significantly elevated. After appropriate acute therapy, the coronary catheterization lab is activated and cardiology is consulted. The clinical definition of a myocardial infarction is the death of myocardial tissue secondary to prolonged and severe ischemia. It's also known as a heart attack. There are different types of a myocardial infarction, the first one being an ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction, or commonly known as a STEMI. A STEMI is an acute coronary syndrome, or ACS, with ST-segment elevations found on electrocardiogram, or ECG. In the case of a STEMI, biomarkers of myocardial necrosis are present. The second type of a myocardial infarction is a non-STEMI, or an N-STEMI. This is an ACS without ST-segment elevations found on ECG, and biomarkers of myocardial necrosis are still present. The third and final type is an unstable angina. This is an ACS without ST-segment elevations found on an ECG, and no elevation of biomarkers of myocardial necrosis. Now let's discuss the epidemiology of a myocardial infarction. The incidence of an MI increases with age, and risk factors include hypertension, cigarette smoking, hyperlipidemia, hypercholesterolemia, cocaine use, male gender, postmenopause, genetic and behavioral predispositions to arteriosclerosis, and finally, coronary heart disease risk equivalents such as diabetes mellitus, chronic kidney disease, non-coronary atherosclerotic disease, carotid artery disease, abdominal aortic aneurysm, and peripheral artery disease. Remember that hypertension, cigarette smoking, hyperlipidemia, hypercholesterolemia, and cocaine use are high-yield risk factors associated with myocardial infarction. Now let's discuss the etiology of a myocardial infarction. An MI is due to the occlusion of a coronary artery, which can be caused by several things. The first being an atheromatous plaque rupture with subsequent thrombi expansion, next vasospasm, and third, an emboli which can be secondary to atrial fibrillation, sending an embolus from the left atrium to the coronary arteries. Emboli can also be due to vegetations from infective endocarditis, material from an intracardiac prosthetic, or even a paradoxical emboli. Now let's discuss the pathophysiology of a myocardial infarction. An MI is due to the occlusion of a coronary artery, which disrupts the blood supply to a region in the myocardium. Ischemia ensues, the myocytes become rapidly dysfunctional, and when ischemia persists, this can result in myocyte death. Note that after 30 minutes of severe ischemia, the damage becomes irreversible. Continuing in the discussion of pathophysiology, let's discuss some infarction patterns. In a subendocardial infarction pattern, myocyte necrosis involves the inner cardiac wall. This is normally the least perfused portion of the myocardium, and this pattern may be referred to as an NSTEMI. The next infarction pattern is a transmural pattern. In this case, the myocyte necrosis involves the full thickness of the cardiac wall, and this may be referred to as a STEMI. Now let's discuss ECG changes and STEMI in terms of infarction location, involved ECG leads, 
and that involve coronary arteries. First, we have the inferior wall infarction. In this case, the involved ECG leads are 2, 3, and AVF, and the involved coronary artery is the RCA. In an anteroapical infarction, you will see changes in leads V3 and V4, and the involved coronary artery is the distal LAD. In an anteroseptal infarction, you'll see changes in V1 and V2 on ECG, and the involved coronary artery is the LAD. In the case of an anterolateral infarction, you'll see changes in V5 and V6 on ECG, and the involved coronary arteries are LAD or LCX. In a lateral infarction, you'll see changes in 1 and AVL on ECG, and the involved coronary artery is the LCX. Finally, in a posterior infarction, you'll see ST depression and tall R waves that can be seen anywhere in V2 to V5, and not all leads are mandatory. You may also see ST elevations in V7 to V9. The posterior descending artery is implicated in the case of a posterior infarction. Now let's discuss the morphological myocardial changes in an MI in terms of time, gross features, light microscopy, and complications associated. Let's start off by talking about the first 24 hours. Initially, there are no gross findings. However, in the first 24 hours, dark modeling ensues. In terms of light microscopy, you may see early coagulation necrosis, wavy fibers, and neutrophil infiltration in the first 24 hours. Finally, the complications associated with this time period are arrhythmia and heart failure. Next, let's discuss what happens in one to three days. Gross features in this time period include modeling with a yellowish infarct center, and light microscopy may show extensive coagulation necrosis and brisk neutrophil infiltration. In one to three days of a myocardial infarction, you may see fibrinous pericarditis as a complication. Next, let's discuss three to 14 days. In three to seven days, gross features include hyperemia with central yellowing. In seven to 10 days, you may see yellow tan with reddish tan margins. In 10 to 14 days, you may see reddish gray infarct borders. Under light microscopy, you will see macrophage infiltration and tissue granulation. Complications associated with the 3 to 14 day range include myocardial wall rupture, in which case you will note sudden hypotension, tachycardia, and pulseless electrical activity. This may lead to cardiac tamponade. Other complications include papillary muscle rupture, which may result in mitral regurgitation, and pseudoaneurysm of a ventricular wall, which may cause rupture. The final time period is two weeks to several months. In two to eight weeks, you may see a gray-white scar form, and in greater than two weeks, you'll see a complete scar. The light microscopy change associated with this time period is a collagenous scar. Complications associated with this time period include Dressler syndrome, heart failure, and true ventricular aneurysm. In the case of a true ventricular aneurysm, know that a thrombus may form, and you need to evaluate with an echocardiograph. ECG with persistent ST elevation in original MI leads with a deep QS wave are associated with the true ventricular aneurysm. Now let's talk about the presentation of a myocardial infarction. Symptoms include chest pain, which is described as squeezing, crushing, substernal, and usually radiates to the jaw, neck, or left shoulder, or down the arm. You may also see other associated symptoms like nausea and vomiting, dyspnea, or they may present asymptomatic, which is typically seen in patients with diabetic neuropathy. This is the case because nerve fibers are damaged and impair their ability to sense pain.
Physical exam includes diaphoresis and variable findings, such as S3 or S4, signs of heart failure, and bradycardia, especially in the case of an inferior wall MI. Imaging includes coronary angiography. This is indicated as a diagnostic study to assess coronary anatomy and to determine where the occlusion is. Other studies include a 12-lead ECG, which should be performed as soon as possible, and findings may include a STEMI, in which case hyperacute or peaked T waves are the earliest finding, ST elevation, which may present initially as ST depression, followed by pseudonormalization of the ST segment, and eventually ST elevation. STEMI is also associated with Q waves, which is a late finding, usually seen about two weeks post-MI, or they can be indicative of previous infarction. STEMI can also be characterized by a new left bundle branch block, and in isolation, this does not denote a STEMI. You need other findings. ECG findings may include prolonged QRS duration, dominant S-wave in V1, broad monophasic or M-shaped R-wave in the lateral leads, leads 1, AVL, and V5 to V6, prolonged R-wave peak time in the left precordial leads, V5 to V6, and this can actually complicate the diagnosis of an MI, so you need to use the Scarbosa criteria. You need three points or more to be concerned for an MI. The criteria include ST elevation, one millimeter or greater in a lead with an upward QRS, which gives you five points, ST depression, one millimeter or greater in V1, V2, or V3, which gives you three points, or ST elevation or depression, five millimeters or greater in a lead with a downward QRS complex, which gives you two points. Another ECG finding associated with STEMI is a heart block. This can include first, second, and third degree heart block, and this is more common in the case of inferior infarctions. Know that the right coronary artery most commonly serves the AV node. In the case of an NSTEMI, ST depression and T-wave inversions are associated on ECG. Next, let's discuss the biomarkers associated with the myocardial infarction. A troponin is the preferred marker as it has a high sensitivity and specificity for myocardial necrosis, Troponin-1 increases after 4 hours and peaks around 24 hours. It remains elevated for 7 to 10 days. The troponin can also be elevated in other conditions, including states of physiologic stress, such as hypotension or sepsis. The CKMB is a sensitive but not specific biomarker since skeletal muscle can also release it, but it is useful for assessing reinfarction. Now let's discuss the differentials associated with the myocardial infarction. The first is unstable angina. The differentiating factor in this case is no elevation and cardiac biomarkers. Next is a hibernating myocardium. In this case, there is decreased contractility of the myocardium, and it's secondary to ischemia without necrosis, and it's reversible when stenting restores blood flow. Then there's Brigada syndrome. This is a sodium channelopathy and shows coved ST elevation, and patients are at risk for sudden cardiac death. Next is Wellens syndrome. In this case, you would see deeply inverted or biphasic T waves on ECG, and this is indicative of critical left anterior descending artery stenosis. Next is dewinter T waves. ST depression and peaked T waves in precordial leads may be seen, and this is an anterior STEMI equivalent, which requires cardiac catheterization. Another differential is cerebral T waves, in which case you would see inverted and wide T waves, as well as prolonged QT on ECG. Cerebral T waves are associated with head trauma and intracranial pathology, 
such as a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Next, we have arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia, which is a common cause of syncope and sudden death. In this case, you would see an epsilon wave on ECG. Next, we have precordial catch syndrome. In this case, the patient presents with sudden, sharp, and severe paroxysms of chest pain, and no ECG or troponin abnormalities would be seen. Finally, we have spontaneous coronary artery dissection, or SCAD, and this is more common in women in the postpartum period and in the case of connective tissue disorders. Spontaneous coronary artery dissection may cause unstable angina, NSTEMI, or STEMI. Finally, let's discuss the treatment of an MI. Conservative management includes lifestyle modification, such as smoking cessation. Medical intervention includes initial medical treatments, such as aspirin, which is the first priority even before diagnostic workup is done, and aspirin confers significant benefit to mortality when given early. Other medical treatments include oxygen, nitroglycerin, which works by reducing chest pain by lowering preload and thus myocardial oxygen demand, and nitroglycerin is also contraindicated in a right inferior wall infarction because it reduces preload leading to cardiovascular collapse, so you should give fluids to maintain blood pressure. Other medical treatments include morphine, which should only be given if there is unacceptable pain, and this intervention appears to be associated with a mortality increase. You should administer benzodiazepines in the case of cocaine-induced myocardial ischemia, and it's typically given with nitroglycerin. P2Y12 or ADP receptor blockers are indicated to be given in addition to aspirin. Heparin should be given in addition to antiplatelet therapy. Beta blockers should be given to all patients suspected of having an MI as long as there are no contraindications. Contraindications to beta blockers include acute decompensated heart failure and bradycardia. A statin is given to all patients suspected of having an MI. An angiotensin-converting enzyme, or ACE inhibitor, is specifically given in the cases of anterior infarction, heart failure, or left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 40%. Note that an ACE inhibitor reduces mortality. Contraindications to an ACE inhibitor are shock, bilateral renal artery stenosis, and allergy. The next treatment modality we have is reperfusion therapy. Cardiac catheterization and percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI, are indicated if STEMI symptoms developed in less than 12 hours and the procedure can be performed within 90 minutes. This intervention has the greatest potential to reduce mortality. Complications associated with the PCI include cholesterol embolism and retroperitoneal hematoma. Next, we have a cabbage, or coronary artery bypass graft. This is indicated when coronary anatomy does not allow for PCI, it's indicated in the case of three-vessel occlusion or two-vessel occlusion in a patient with diabetes, or in the case of significant stenosis of the left main coronary artery. The final treatment modality is fibrinolytic therapy. This is indicated in patients who cannot receive PCI within 90 minutes. Complications of an MI include heart failure, sudden cardiac death, arrhythmia, and myocardial stunning. Now that we've covered the high-yield learning points associated with the myocardial infarction, Let's try some practice questions. Question number one. A 66-year-old man presents to the emergency department with chest pain, shortness of breath, and diaphoresis that started suddenly 25 minutes ago. His symptoms are ongoing upon arrival, and the patient has a past medical history of diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, smoking, and IV drug abuse. The patient is given several medications and is taken to the cardiac catheterization lab. He is subsequently admitted to the medicine floor. 
The patient is recovering well. However, on day four of his hospital stay, he complains of sudden onset chest pain. His temperature at the time is 99.3 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.4 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 52 over 38. Pulse is 177 per minute. Respirations are 34 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 99% on room air. The patient becomes unresponsive and nursing is unable to palpate ephemeral pulse. An ECG is performed, which is available for your review on medbullets.com as figure A, but for your listening convenience, I'll let you know that it is a normal ECG in sinus rhythm with premature ventricular contractions occurring regularly. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? 1. Cardiac arrhythmia. 2. Pulmonary embolism. 3. Repeat myocardial infarction. 4. Ventricular aneurysm or 5, ventricular free wall rupture? The correct answer is 5, ventricular free wall rupture. This patient is presenting after a myocardial infarction, which we suspect given his initial chest pain, shortness of breath, and diaphoresis treated by cardiac catheterization, who four days later developed sudden onset chest pain and pulselessness with a normal ECG, which was concerning for pulseless electrical activity, which is concerning for a diagnosis of ventricular free wall rupture. A myocardial infarction presents with chest pain, dyspnea, and diaphoresis in a patient with risk factors such as hypertension, diabetes, and atherosclerotic disease. The most appropriate initial step in management is aspirin followed by an ECG. Further treatment involves clopidogrel or ticagrelor, heparin, and cardiac catheterization if the patient has ST elevations on ECG. After treatment, patients should be monitored as the myocardium heals. Days 3 to 5 after a myocardial infarction are high risk for ventricular free wall rupture given that macrophages have cleared the necrotic debris, yet there has not been formation of a healed scar. Ventricular free wall rupture presents with sudden onset chest pain, hypotension, tachycardia, jugular venous distension, tamponade, pulselessness, and death. Patients should immediately have CPR performed and be resuscitated appropriately. However, there is a very high mortality with a ventricular free wall rupture, and most patients will not survive the trip to the operating room. Just to review, figure A showed a normal ECG in sinus rhythm with premature ventricular contractions occurring regularly. Premature ventricular contractions, or PVCs, are typically a benign finding and do not cause unstable vitals. Now let's discuss the incorrect answers. Answer 1. Cardiac arrhythmia is a common cause of sudden death after myocardial infarction and could cause fatal arrhythmias such as ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation, or asystole. This patient's normal ECG with sinus tachycardia and a lack of palpable pulses suggests a diagnosis of pulseless electrical activity secondary to ventricular free wall rupture. Answer 2. Pulmonary embolism can cause hypotension, tachycardia, and cardiac arrest. This patient does have increased risk for stasis as he has been in the hospital. However, in the setting of a recent myocardial infarction and symptoms occurring three to five days later, in the setting of sudden onset pulselessness, a ventricular free wall rupture is a more likely diagnosis. Answer three. Repeat myocardial infarction is a possibility in a high-risk patient such as this one who has just suffered from a myocardial infarction. However, ST elevation on ECG would be suspected, and the patient would not suddenly become pulseless, although it is possible. This is a plausible yet less likely diagnosis. Answer 4. 
Ventricular aneurysm can develop weeks to months later and increases the risk of thromboembolism formation, which can cause a stroke. A stroke from an embolism would present with sudden-onset focal neurological deficits such as weakness, loss of sensation, or slurring of speech. Finally, a bullet summary. Ventricular free wall rupture occurs three to five days after a myocardial infarction and can present with sudden-onset chest pain, hypotension, tachycardia, and loss of pulses. Question number two. A 55-year-old man presents to the emergency department with chest pain and dyspnea. He states that it started while he was bowling and has persisted for the past hour. The patient generally does not see a doctor, smokes one to two packs per day, and drinks three alcoholic beverages every night. He has a history of hyperlipidemia, hypertriglyceridemia, and a low, high-density lipoprotein level. His temperature is 99.2 degrees Fahrenheit, or 37.3 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 140 over 81. Pulse is 90 per minute. Respirations are 16 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 100% on room air. An ECG is performed, which demonstrates ST elevations in leads 1 through 5, and you can see this ECG on figure A on medbullets.com. The patient is treated appropriately and is admitted to the hospital. On day four, the patient is being discharged. Which of the following medications should be started in this patient? One, furosemide. Two, gemfibrozil. Three, lisinopril. Four, spironolactone. Or five, niacin. If you answered three, lisinopril, you are correct. This patient is presenting with chest pain, dyspnea, multiple risk factors such as alcohol use, smoking, hyperlipidemia, hypertriglyceridemia, and a low high-density lipoprotein level, and an ECG demonstrated ST elevations, which is concerning for an ST elevation myocardial infarction, or a STEMI. Upon discharge, this patient should be started on a mortality-lowering agent, such as lisinopril. Patients with acute coronary syndrome, or ACS, should be medically managed to prevent the recurrence of symptoms and reduce mortality. All patients should be counseled in lifestyle modifications, including exercise, weight loss, smoking cessation, and abstinence from alcohol. They should also be started on medications that lower mortality. Mortality-lowering medications include aspirin, statins, beta blockers, and ACE inhibitors. Any patient who is high-risk, has unstable angina, or who has a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction should also have a diagnostic catheterization and stenting if needed. Figure A was an ECG that demonstrated ST elevations in leads V1 through V5, which is concerning for a STEMI. Now let's discuss the incorrect answers. Answer 1. Furosemide is a diuretic that could be used to reduce the symptoms of heart failure. However, it does not reduce mortality. A heart failure flare with pulmonary edema would present with dyspnea, hypoxia, pulmonary crackles or wheezes, and pulmonary edema on chest radiograph. Answer 2. Gemfibrozil is a lipid-lowering agent that may be indicated in patients with hypertriglyceridemia. However, it is not a preferred lipid agent when compared to statins, which have a greater effect on mortality, and certainly is not preferable when compared to lisinopril for lowering mortality. Answer 4. Spironolactone is a potassium-sparing diuretic that could lower mortality, but typically does so in more symptomatic patients with a poor ejection fraction. It would not be a preferred initial agent when compared to lisinopril. Answer 5. 
niacin is the most effective medication to raise a patient's high-density lipoprotein, or HDL, level. However, it does not lower mortality and has no clear indication. Bullet Summary Mortality-lowering medications that should be given to a patient after a myocardial infarction include beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, aspirin, and statins. Question number three. A 66-year-old man presents to the emergency department for sudden-onset right leg pain. He states that it started one hour ago and has progressed to numbness in his right lower extremity. The patient was treated for a myocardial infarction one month ago and has been compliant with medical care. His temperature is 99.3 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.4 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 142 over 88. Pulse is 87 per minute. Respirations are 14 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 99% on room air. The patient's right lower extremity is cold to the touch and is notably pale. The physician is unable to palpate or Doppler a posterior tibial or dorsalis pedis pulse. The patient is subsequently treated appropriately for his chief complaint and is admitted to the hospital. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? 1. Cardiac catheterization 2. Celostazole 3. CT angiogram of the chest 4. Echocardiogram or 5. Graded exercise The correct answer is 4. Echocardiogram this patient is presenting after a myocardial infarction with a cold, initially painful, and now numb, pulseless lower extremity, which is concerning for a diagnosis of arterial embolization. After initial emergent management, this patient should have an echocardiogram performed to evaluate for a ventricular aneurysm as the etiology of his symptoms. A pulseless limb is an emergency diagnosis as it can lead to permanent injury to the affected extremity. It presents with pallor, poikilothermia, pain, and pulselessness. Any patient with a suspected pulseless limb should be started on a heparin drip, have a CT angiogram of the extremity performed, and be sent for vascular surgery to remove the thrombus. There are many etiologies of embolization, including atrial fibrillation or a ventricular aneurysm. A ventricular aneurysm occurs weeks to months after a myocardial infarction when scar tissue heals over the necrotic area. Stasis in the aneurysm leads to thrombus formation. For this reason, patients must be assessed after a myocardial infarction for a thrombus or aneurysm with a transthoracic echocardiogram. Now let's go over the incorrect answers. Answer 1. Cardiac catheterization on an elective basis or not upon initial presentation would be indicated for high-risk chest pain, such as in a patient with multiple risk factors and a classic history, or in a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. In this patient, it would not be needed to further evaluate for the etiology of his pulseless limb. Answer 2. Silastazole is an appropriate long-term treatment for vascular claudication, which presents with burning leg pain upon exertion that is relieved upon rest. It is typically caused by atherosclerosis and not by an embolism, which is a much more emergent diagnosis. Answer 3. CT angiogram of the chest may be indicated to further elucidate a pulmonary embolism, which presents with chest pain, dyspnea, hypoxia, and tachycardia in a patient with risk factors such as stasis or hypercoagulability. It would not be the appropriate test to further assess a patient for a ventricular aneurysm or thrombus in the lower extremity. Answer 5. Graded exercise is the most effective and most appropriate initial therapy for vascular claudication, which presents with burning lower extremity pain that is relieved by rest. 
It is not the management of a ventricular aneurysm or embolization, as in this patient. Now for a final bullet summary. After a myocardial infarction, patients are at risk of developing a ventricular aneurysm, which can cause stasis and thrombus formation, warranting further evaluation with an echocardiogram. That's all for today's review of myocardial infarction. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing these topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or mobile app while reading through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets podcast thus far, we'd appreciate your consideration in leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.